Hey everyone, Gil Gross here, and it is time for another mailbag where I answer your opinions, your questions, your hot takes, and ultimately your comments on tennis or anything else. I posted in the YouTube community tab over 24 hours ago and got a lot of really awesome comments. I come to you from South Florida. For those of you who didn't watch the Miami preview, that is why the background is different. Uh, you can see I've gotten a little bit of color from being out in the sun so much and a very awkward tan line right here because I've been wearing my sunglasses, which has covered that part of my nose and protected it from the sun. It's been great. It's been awesome. Uh, I'm going to post a video on Monday, uh, which is instead of a typical Monday match analysis, it's basically going to be a vlog that documents my experience covering the Miami Open. But really what it's about is delivering that experience of being at the tournament and covering the tournament uh, to you, the viewers. That's the goal of it, uh, to give you a flavor for the event and to take you behind the scenes as much as I possibly can, as well as, I guess, you know, there will be some tennis stuff and content analysis, whatever, kind of interspersed in that. So that's what we have to look forward to on Monday. Let's get to the first comment here from Max. What are your thoughts on Alcaraz's chances on grass this year? I think his serve has gotten better, but may not be good enough yet to challenge Djokovic on the surface. Look, I don't know about the, the whole Djokovic thing. I can't decide right now how I think that match would look. It's still uh, quite a far bit away. I haven't even really seen Alcaraz play in quick conditions this year yet, right? Two clay and and Indian Wells, uh, so I got to see what that looks like. I actually didn't see his match today in Miami against Facundo Bagnus. Believe it or not, I missed that one. Uh, so obviously there's a lack of data for me when it comes to this year especially, but in general, my stance on Alcaraz on grass remains that he's going to excel on grass. It's going to be, look, Alcaraz is so well-rounded that what we'll see is different strengths in his game will be exacerbated on different surfaces. So let's just oversimplify that for the purpose of this question. On clay, his speed might be a bigger factor. On grass, his transition game might be a bigger factor. And how offensive he can be from the midcourt in being proactive and changing direction. So, or, or the aggressive second serve returning, which is an excellent part of his game that I think really helps on grass. Uh, you know, the game is going to work across all surfaces. I think there's a lot to love about Al Alcaraz on grass. But yeah, uh, the serve is, uh, is an area where he can be a little bit exploited. He can really lose that kind of unreturned serves percentage battle and kind of dig himself a hole in the respect of not getting as many free points as his opponent. So that can be one disadvantage for him. The movement is not as comfortable on grass from what we saw last year. And there's also some technical stuff where I do feel like last year he was getting rushed a little bit and he wasn't handling the low bounce as well as maybe he can but overall, he's going to be great on grass. The last thing I'll say is the fact that these questions, and I always like to point this out, uh, this, this comment got 13 likes, which was one of the top comments, and it's not even clay court season yet. 
the interest in grass remains incredibly, incredibly high. From Nicola, how bad are these balls that some tennis players, most famously Daniil, have been complaining about? Tsitsipas recently came out saying he think he injured his shoulder because of them. Can you break down this whole ball controversy and why a ball could have such dire consequences for players? Is there anything they can do to adjust or are their complaints warranted? Hope you're enjoying Miami. All right, well, first of all, uh, it's this Dunlop ball that most of this season has been, has been played with uh, using these balls on the hard court, the extra duty balls, uh, Australian Open, all the lead-ups to the Australian Open, the Middle Eastern tournaments were using them, and now Miami uses them. And it comes down to a lot of it just commercial sponsorship. So as far as I'm concerned, and as far as I know, if, if Wilson bids the most money, then the ball is going to be Wilson. If Dunlop bids the most money, then the ball is going to be Dunlop. This is how most of the world works. I will make a point to say I have not independently verified that that is how it works, but knowing what I know about how tournaments operate in general and how, quite frankly, the world operates in general, I would be stunned if that is not how this works. Whoever bids the most money, that's the ball. I mean, that is, I'm, I'm almost sure how it works. So I like to first say that. Um, look, Daniil believes that, first of all, he plays well with the balls. He, he, he feels like he plays well with them. But he finds them to feel very, very heavy. And therefore, upon contact, he thinks it sends more shock waves through, basically through the arm. So wrist, elbow, shoulder... Daniil has said it. he thinks it really applies more uh, stress and pressure on the arm uh, because of almost how the, the weight of the balls feel very, very, very heavy. Has there been a suspicious number of, of wrist injuries? Yeah, there kind of has. Sebastian Corda, Jensen Brooksby just had wrist surgery. Tsitsipas has the shoulder thing. Uh stops there for me. I might, I might be forgetting some, but I do feel like that's a lot when we're talking about, you know, top 50 players first two months of the season. I think that's quite a bit. Medvedev thinks the ball is different. Okay. And if it is different, then they need to take a look at it. Andy Murray was asked about it. He kind of brushed it off, but you know, Andy has said, well, it would be great if we had uh, consistency in, in terms of the balls. So I believe if there was a player union, one of the things they might bargain for is that the tour created a, a sponsorship that would span all of its properties and therefore all ATP events would be played with the same balls. But since there is nobody representing the players' interests, it is the tournaments getting to do whatever they want. And they don't need to even really collaborate with the other tournaments around it. So uh, that is the fullest picture that I can paint about this ball controversy. But it, it's not the first time we've heard complaints about tennis balls. It won't be the last time. 
they they act differently and it's a big deal obviously um and that's all i can say from austin what's your take on on court coaching now that it's been wheeled out for a while i know you were a detractor at the beginning do you think it's affected the game in a significant way are we still on trial period love your channel thank you the fact that you need to ask that are we still on trial period is one of the weird parts because i have been absolutely uh, flabbergasted, or I should say baffled by the fact that such a major part of the sport and the sport's rules has been communicated not at all. It, it hasn't been communicated. The year started and I had to text people who are in the know, who are on the tour, and I had to say like, hey, are you allowed to coach? Because I don't know. And the ATP hasn't said anything. And they said that there was going to be a trial until the end of 2022. And then 2022 ended and then 2023 started and nothing was said. The answer is that, as you guys have seen watching tennis, that the trial was extended. There has still not been any kind of announcement that this is going to uh, stay. However, at this point, it would be really, really hard to reel it back. The, the toothpaste is out of the tube in a lot of respects. I think the players have liked it. The coaches have liked it. How do I feel about it? I'm a little bit unhappy. I'm unhappy because my position was this, and I'm not going to rehash every part of the argument. If you want to see that, look it up. And you know, it's a 13 minute video. I can't spend 13 minutes uh, right now, but either you allow coaching and you, and you improve the entertainment value of it and you lean into it you mic them up you make them go to the press conference right next to the player you make sure to identify them to the media and to the broadcasters which is a huge one for me and i know i care about this as a as a tennis broadcaster more than the average folks but the fact that we are we are in a in a moment where coaching is legal in the sport yet the broadcasters are not necessarily made aware of who the coach is what the coach's name is is absolutely appalling i mean in what world can there be a sport where somebody is coaching and the name of the coach is not made available and public because that is where we're at. And you can say, look at the website, look at the pages. It is so outdated. It is all the time. It is incorrect. What's listed on, on the website. I mean, I'm not going to give specific examples, but there are plenty of players. Their coach, the coach that is listed is completely wrong. And I mean, how could we, we have to do it better if we're going to do it. Instead, this has been rolled out, uh, sloppily and the fans haven't benefited whatsoever. The product has not been improved. I guess the only thing that's improved is some of the players and some of the coaches who were bothered by the fact that, uh, or felt restricted by the old rule, uh, feel better about it now. That's been the only thing that's changed. With that said, if we bring some perspective to it, it also hasn't really detracted from the product in any way. 
I still think at the lower levels, the fact that no coaching is allowed in tennis is noble. And again, like if I were in charge of the USTA, I would want to keep that rule in place. I think it's a feature of the sport. And when it comes to juniors and, you know, players growing up with the sport, I like the fact that it's a sport where you have to problem solve on your own at the lower levels, grassroots. So for that to be taken away at the pro level, okay, fine. But if you're going to take it away, can we see some benefit from it? We haven't seen any benefit from it. None. Maybe if you were so annoyed at the, at the Apostolos Tsitsipas uh, hypocrisy, which I think did exist to a certain extent, although I also think that he was uh, worse, uh, the worst cheater uh, that you could be when it comes to trying to break the rules subtly. Uh, if you were that bothered by that, then I guess, I guess things are better now. But other than that, I can't think of a single benefit to the viewer because rarely have, have there been instances where the coaching has brought real insight to the television broadcast or, I don't know, uh, the live viewing experience. It certainly hasn't. All right. From Jack Young. We know about Ben Shelton's potential as a tennis player, but his new on sponsorship has me wondering, what do you think about his potential as a general superstar? If he truly becomes a top player and wins a couple majors, I think he would become an absolute star in America and make men's tennis more relevant here again. His game is obviously very explosive and enjoyable to watch for even a casual fan. His personality on court is very engaging, positive, and intense. He also just has a superstar look. He is managed by Federer's agency, Team 8, so his star potential will surely be maximized from a marketing aspect. I don't have that much to add to this other than fully agreeing. That's been something that I have, uh, have been thinking about as I've watched Ben Shelton rise up the ranks and gotten to know his personality a little bit more, his on-court persona, and uh, heard him in interviews. I think he's someone that uh, people are going to fall in love with uh, big time. From KH, random question, what are the general differences between a player ranked in the top 200 and a player ranked 1,000? Can you give us a short analysis of that? It, it definitely differs. There's no universal rule of thumb, but I have very much enjoyed at times watching players who are juniors or watching players at Davis Cup or, or United Cup. Sometimes uh, those formats allow me to watch players who are ranked, you know, 500s or 800s, players who I, I simply, I normally wouldn't watch them because they're not at a high enough level. And just observe... Uh, as a ball boy at the U.S. Open, actually, I would see uh, a lot. I would do some juniors, and I would I would take note of kind of where they're lacking. Or challengers, uh, challengers to the main draw, right? First week of ball boying would be would be not challengers qualifying versus the main draw. First week would be qualifying, 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 and then boom, snap a finger, coming to work on Monday, and it's main draw. So. It, it, it's always been interesting to, to try to get a grasp on what some of those differences are. And you find that there are, there are a lot of different kinds of uh, players who are kind of outside the, I'll, I'll, I'll say outside challenger level, because you're saying top 200 versus 1,000. You know, 1,000 means you're playing futures, 
you're just trying to kind of get in the mix. Um, and at that level, sometimes they'll have one really, really a ma massive problem. Sometimes, sometimes that's not it. Sometimes they're, uh, they're totally solid. They've built a great game, but they just, they're just not physical enough. They're, uh, they're usually short. They're not very fast. They're not very powerful because they're too small and they have this beautiful game and they don't really have weaknesses and they've done everything they can, but they just weren't born with the genetics that are going to propel them to the level where they're going to be making a living here. And there's nothing they can do. There's nothing they can do mentally, technically, everything is there. Sorry, weren't born with it. And uh, that's a lot of players. It's a lot of players. That's a lot of siblings. Look at the siblings on tour. Look at. I, I don't want to. I don't want to name names actually. But but a lot of you know when you have one sibling, who is a superstar and the other one is not. Take a look at their their build, their. I guess. Uh, the stuff that is just purely genetic, and, and usually you can find your answer there. Um, the weapons are oftentimes lacking before you get to the top level. Uh, sometimes you'll, and I, I actually think there are a lot of challenger level players who are physical, who don't have huge weaknesses, but they don't have offensive weapons. You can get pretty far though. You can get pretty far if, if that's your prototype. And then I'd say the last thing is sometimes you just, there's not a lot going for you, but you have, you, you know, your serve carries you or your power totally carries you like you, but you're just so inconsistent. You don't make enough balls. Uh, you don't defend well enough. So there are all kinds of, there are all kinds of players. That's the thing. There are all kinds of players. If you, if you go to a futures event and you watch tennis at futures and you you figure out kind of what's wrong with each player why they're not top 100 and by the way they're great players but why are they not top 100 if you're going to look at them through that lens you're going to find all kinds of different answers which is interesting because we see that reflected in the top 100 if we go 50 through 100 and ask okay why aren't you top 20 why aren't you top 20 why aren't you top 20 the same thing happens, right? We come up with all these different kinds of answers. It's a fascinating thing. Good question. From Sharon. I hope you're enjoying your time at the Miami Open so far. As a credentialed media member, what does a typical day at the tournament look like for you? And what kind of access do you have to players? Are there any changes you would make at tournaments to help improve media coverage for tennis? All right, most of this question I'm not going to answer because my video on Monday is going to answer it, right? But I'll talk about two things here. Two things that maybe I won't get into as much on, on Monday. But uh, what changes would you make? I mean, I would say to make media coverage better, I think the biggest thing is the fact that players, it's a pretty player friendly setup when it comes to private areas. And I think what other sports have that tennis really doesn't have is uh, 
is the fact that I, I media only really gets access to players in a highly supervised environment, such as, well, really, I, I shouldn't say such as, really only press conferences, media availability. And it's a very rigid structure that we have in tennis. And that is to protect the players. Players like this. They like it. They do not want media in their areas. However, athletes in other sports do make that sacrifice. And there are more areas where there is intermingling and access between media and the players. And I'm going to give you an example. In baseball, it's batting practice. Every single journalist who covers baseball will tell you this, that batting practice is where the conversations are had. It's far before the game. It's in a, you know, it's in a public area. It's on the field. And when players are, are taking batting practice and warming up, it's a time for these informal conversations and these relationships to be built. Um, and that's what happens. And that's kind of where the, the relationships between media and players are actually uh, formed. In, in basketball, oftentimes, it's an open locker room after the game. It's an open locker room. So you go into the locker room. Uh, it, it, it is a set time, but you can talk to the players at their locker room kind of in a more intimate setting. And it's, it's not as uh, mediated. It's not a, a mediated thing. In a press conference, you know, you might not get to ask a follow-up. You might not get to... So if you want to talk to a player about, let's say, I'm going to give an example, their passion for video games. Daniil Medvedev's passion for video games. Let's say, let's say you wanted to do a story on that. And you really wanted to delve into that. In the press conference setting, you're getting two questions maximum. Maximum. And really, a great story about Medvedev's video games it's going to be a 20 to 25 minute conversation at least. That's what you need to, to build a really good story. And you're not really going to get that because you're not going to get that unless you get a one-on-one. One-on-ones are often denied, especially for top players. They're denied even more often. Does, uh, is that facilitated for media members at like the Miami Open? Yes you can request a one-on-one. -on -one. You absolutely can. Um, sometimes those one-on-ones will be win only, so you won't get it if the player loses. And sometimes they'll be denied. So, and, and you know, I haven't had a, enough experience with that system or talked about to enough people about that system to really give you a good read on how easy that is or how successful most journalists are when they request one-on-ones with players who they want to do a story against. Uh, about. But even in that one-on-one -on -one setting, usually there's a press officer and usually there's a strict time limitation. Now at the Miami Open and Indian Wells, there's these grassy, this big grassy area. And what are the players doing at that area? They are stretching. They are warming up. They're throwing a football around. They're not in a private space. They're not in the locker room. They're out in the open they're not on court. They're not on the practice court. Theoretically, this is a space where, you know, you could allow media to be in that space. That would be a more media-friendly setup. 
and a less player-friendly setup. But uh, in, in tennis, the way things are structured and the, the way the power balance is, media don't get that kind of, that kind of power. The, players, uh, the comfort of the players is much more important to the tournaments. And the tournaments are the rule setters here. It's individually. Uh, individually, the tournaments make those decisions. So I would say what is lacking for a media member are casual settings where both where players are and you are allowed. It doesn't really exist unless you're a, unless you have a special credential. If you're like a former player, uh, then then you get more. And that's why oftentimes, like your TV commentators will often have some really great insights. Oh, I talked to so-and-so's coach. Now, sometimes it's, you know, a texting conversation, but sometimes it's like, oh no, I was going to get food and I was going to get food in the same area where the players go to get food uh, because I am Jim Courier and my credential as a former player allows me to go get food where the players get food. And guess what? I ran into Juan Carlos Ferrero and I got to talk to him about Carlitos. And now I have this insight. That's how it happens. Press, regular media, like the regular credential that I have for, for the Miami Open, there is nowhere where the players are that I'm allowed to be, other than press conferences, other than interviews. That's it. That is going to limit what... Now, now look, I'm not a features journalist. I don't write for a newspaper. It doesn't make much of a difference for me. Um... But that is what I think is, that is the reason why, I'm, I'm going to tell you something. The LA Times, the Los Angeles Times, did not send anyone to Indian Wells. And that is a reflection on, in my opinion, how productive they feel they can be at a tennis tournament in terms of their coverage. It's not, uh, it's not great in terms of what you can do compared to other sports. Other sports provide more access. From Rue, what do you think it is about Daniil's game that has improved this year? And what led him on this 19 match winning streak? Is he just more motivated? Does he want it more than he did in 2022? Uh, no, I don't think it's about motivation. I don't think it's about how badly he wants it. I, I think, you know, he hit a patch of confidence. Confidence is everything for tennis players, but what kind of created that confidence? And what kind of changed? Uh, I do think he, I think he changed his string, a more powerful string. We've talked about in the past, Medvedev needed to find more baseline power to find more generation of offense from the back of the court. And I think he found that with the new string setup. And I'm not confident enough to say he definitely made a technical change on his forehand. But I do think he's coming through the ball a little bit differently than he did last year. I don't think it's quite as flat. I, I feel like there's a little bit more acceleration. I feel like there's a little bit more whip on his forehand. I almost feel like he's relaxed his, uh, his wrist a little bit. He's loosened his grip on the racket a little bit. It's just the racket head is coming through the forehand a lot faster. And 
I, I mean, look, the serving has been better. The defense has been better. But the biggest thing to me has been that the forehand has been damaging. And I think that's the biggest difference when it comes to just what he's been able to produce on the tennis court. From Ryan, Gil, thanks for all the great content. I've heard you talk about the one-handed backhand previously, and I would like to know if you think it's holding players back. Currently, only one player in the top 20 uses it and a handful in the top 50. It seems to be why Pass is so inconsistent. I'm sure there will be an exception like Roger, but it seems like the most consistent results are coming from the two-handed backhand. Yeah, uh, I probably said this uh, recently, but it's the most popular mailbag question is what's going on with the one-handed backhand. And I'll just say, look, you can't ignore the numbers. You, you just can't. Uh, the numbers say that it's just declining. It's just declining more and more and more. The one-hander needs to figure out the return of serve. The return of serve is really hard for the one-hander, and that's the obstacle. But I think after that, there are some real advantages in terms of just how hard you can hit the ball, how much spin you can generate on the one-hander. And I think there's there's will always be a place for Team's backhand and Vavrinka's backhand and Federer's backhand. Look, Titipas's backhand doesn't help him. You know, it, it's... It's not a strength, um, so I'm not going to include him there. But yeah, he's been able to be a top player with the backhand. But I, the guys who I mentioned before, no two-handers can hit their backhands as big as them. None. Zippo. Zero. No two-handers backhand is as big as stands. No two-handers backhands is as big as teams. None. It's impossible. So you can't tell me that... There won't be a place for a one-handed backhand on tour unless juniors just stop trying. And if juniors stop trying, it'll go away, but not because it can't work, just because, just because it went out of style. Uh, but I just can't see it ever disappearing because there's an advantage there. I just can't see it ever disappearing fully. You just got to figure out the return of serve. From Niklas, I'm going to go uh, only uh, six more minutes. How strong is recency bias in tennis and how do you cope with it, Gil? A few examples. Titipas starts strong and everybody's talking after AO. How his improved attitude will take him to new heights. February through March, nothing. Medvedev falls out of the top 10. Everybody's seemingly got him figured out. Goes on an insane winning streak. Runa beats five top 10 players on his way to the Paris title. His game has finally clicked and a new star is born. 2023 so far quiet. Alcaraz comes back after three months off and reminds us what a beast of a player he actually is. Continued love. Thank you. And thank you for being a member, Nicholas. Uh, so look case by case, but I... Uh, I always try to combat recency bias with all of my fullest efforts. But um, with Tsitsipas, it's this. It's contextual. First of all, everything that happens, you have to contextualize it. And this is why maybe sometimes I get accused of excuses. It's not excuses. It's just analysis. Uh, right now, Tsitsipas is not healthy. So I will really refrain from reacting to his results. Rotterdam... Indian Wells, Miami, 
until Pass, I feel like is healthy, I will not be reacting to his results. And folks will be in the comments saying, Gil, why are you overrating Pass? He stinks. He can't win. Gil, why do you love Pass? Why are you keeping him in the tier that you're keeping him in? And I will tell you, he's injured. I don't care if he loses. He's injured. I don't care. That's what I, and, and you've seen me do that before. That's how you combat recency bias. And that's how, and that's the, that's the best thing to do. You have to contextualize everything that happens. Now let's go to Medvedev. Um, look, now Medvedev, Medvedev went, you know, a solid year not really doing much to, uh, like, like it was a long period of time compared to, some of these other examples where people are just reacting really hard. I mean, Runa, it was, it was what, six weeks? Uh, Titipas, we're talking like, you know, a couple of tournaments. Now his stock is in the toilet. Uh, but for Medvedev, it was a long time. Um, but I think you just, you just need to, I guess, usually meet it somewhere in the middle. Um, that's kind of what I did with Medvedev is... Look, he's not this bad. Maybe he's not uh, also as good as maybe he's looked on this winning streak. And he's probably somewhere in the middle. I guess with Runa, beware of sample size. Beware of sample size. And beware of, of results in, in the fall. Um, now look, Runa's going to be a great player. It's not like what he did in the fall is some kind of fraudulent thing that we're always going to remember as some kind of wacko occurrence. I don't think that's how it is. But, and I said this at the beginning of the year when I predicted Runa to finish world number nine, which at the time was a pretty, it was a projection that was a lot lower than I think what most people had him. And I didn't argue against what Runa can do on a tennis court. I didn't say, I think Runa has this kind of weakness and that's why I think he's he's not going to finish top eight. All I said was, hmm, it's only six weeks here where he's been a top player. And that is not enough time for me to be convinced that that is exactly who he is. So beware of sample size. All right, that is all. That's all I got on that question. From Avi. Hey, Gil. Love your amazing content. Appreciate it. Have you heard of Tiafo's latest hot take? What is your opinion? I am absolutely against what he said. Tiafo, quote, I think fans should be able to come and go and move around and speak during matches. Imagine going to a basketball game and not saying anything, apart from retaining some tradition at Wimbledon. Outside that, let's start changing things to bring younger fans to the game. Speaking of Tiafo, what do you make of the fact that, oh, uh, okay, now you just take a dig at him. What do you make of the fact that he has only won one title and won it in February 2018, five years ago. Hasn't won a set in his last four finals. Yeah, I mean, you know, kind of just bad finals luck at the end of the day. Um, it's coming. Francis will win a title probably this year. Uh, what do I think of... So Tiafo basically saying, like, let's do some experimentation with fans getting to speak and move around. Yeah. No, I, I agree with him. Uh at some level of tennis, it should be attempted because it's not that bad. I was just at Alcaraz and Tsitsipas practice set. They were playing a practice set. 
People were talking. People were moving. It was fine. They could play. They didn't lose their focus. They didn't lose their concentration. They weren't distracted. Their level was sky high. People were still engaged and reacting to, to each point and clapping, but you could have a conversation with the person next to you without having to worry about it. You could get up and leave. You could, you could come and go, and it wasn't a big problem. College tennis has it. It's not a big problem. At some levels of tennis, this should be experimented with. And I'm not saying that, you know, it should... The, the silence should be completely done away with and that it's no good, but um, I call for experimentation. I agree with that. And let's see how the players like it and let's see how the fans like it. And uh, I, I just don't see a downside because at the end of the day, uh, it's, it's not that big a deal. It, it's really not. So we should see what happens because it can really change the experience. And uh, what golf has done with uh, what, what is it called? The Waste Management Open in Phoenix. It's, it's a tournament that, as far as I know, is not that big of a tournament. But it's treated like another major now because fans are so excited to go there and players are so excited to play at it because it is a one-of-a-kind and unique experience because this Waste Management Open in Phoenix allows fans to be super, super rowdy, loud, and as obnoxious as they want. And it becomes a party, and it becomes a great time. And should the Masters ever look like that, or ever be like that? No. But here we have a, a tournament that could be just another tournament during the year, the Waste Management Open in Phoenix. Just another one. Doesn't bring anything interesting to the table. Nothing new, nothing, nothing. And now it's a huge event because they tried something new in terms of the fan experience. So I agree with Francis. Uh, Jessica Pagula was asked about it in, in her press conference that I was in the other day. She also agreed with it. I don't think the players hate this either, as much as maybe uh, you would think that they would. What's distracting the players is if you have dead silence and one idiot calls out, that's distracting. But if everybody's just allowed to talk, it's not distracting. It's not. And the U.S. Open is proof of that. All right, everybody. This has been fun. Um, Going to take in more tennis the next couple days at the Miami Open. And uh, I hope I won't have any delays. But the plan right now is for the vlog to come out on Monday, uh, which will be a, a super fun and enjoyable. Again, taking you guys behind the scenes as much as I can and just giving you the experience of the Miami Open from my perspective. Hope you enjoyed. Don't forget to subscribe. I'll see you next time.